Rather than rupture your skulls on the glittering details of Woodhouse's narrative, I'm going to cut for my third extract to what might be described as the chase. At this moment, there came to the eardrum an odd sort of hammering noise in the distance, which at first I couldn't classify. It sounded as if someone was doing a tap dance, but it seemed improbable that people would be doing tap dances out of doors at this hour. Then I got it. Somebody, no, two people, was, or I should say were, herring towards us along the road, and I was turning to cock an eyebrow inquisitively at Jeeves when he drew me into the shadows. I fear the worst, sir, he said in a hushed voice, and sure enough, along it came. In addition to the stars quiring to the young-eyed cherubim, there was now in the serene sky a fair-sized moon, and as always happens under these conditions, the visibility was improved. By its light one could see what was in progress. Gussie and Constable Dobbs were in progress, in the order named. Not having been present at the outset of the proceedings, I can only guess at what had occurred in the early stages, but anyone entering a police station to steal a dog and finding Constable Dobbs on the premises would have lost little time in picking up the feet, and I think we can assume that Gussie had got off to a good start. At any rate, at the moment when the runners came into view, he had established a nice lead and appeared to be increasing it. It's curious how you can be intimate with a fellow from early boyhood and yet remain unacquainted with one side of him. Mixing constantly with Gussie through the years, I had come to know him as a newt fancier, a lover and a fathead, but I had never suspected him of possessing outstanding qualities as a sprinter on the flat, and I was amazed at the high order of ability he was exhibiting in this very specialised form of activity. He was coming along like a jackrabbit of the western prairie, his head back and his green beard floating in the breeze. I liked his ankle work. Dobbs, on the other hand, was more laboured in his movements, and to an eye like mine, trained in the watching of point-to-point -point races, had all the look of an also-ram. One noted symptoms of roaring, and I am convinced that had Gussie had the intelligence to stick to his job and make a straight race of it, he would soon have outdistanced the field and come home on a tight rein. Police constables are not built for speed. Where you catch them at their best is standing on street corners saying, Pass along there! But as I was stressing a moment ago, Augustus Finknottle, in addition to being a flat racer of marked ability, was also a fathead. And now, when he had victory in his grasp, the fat-headed streak in him came uppermost. There was a tree standing at the roadside, and suddenly swerving off the course, he made for it and hoisted himself into its branches. And what he supposed that was going to get him, only his diseased mind knew. Ernest Dobbs may not have been one of Hampshire's brightest thinkers, but he was smart enough to stand under a tree. And this he proceeded to to do. Determination to fight it out on these lines if it took all summer was written on every inch of his powerful frame. His back being towards me, I couldn't see his face, but I have no doubt it was registering an equal amount of resolution, and nothing could have been firmer than his voice as he urged, urged upon the rooster above the advisability of coming down without further waste of time. It was a fair cop, said Ernest Dobbs. 
and I agreed with him. To shut out the painful scene which must inevitably ensue, I closed my eyes. It was an odd, chunky sound, like some solid substance striking another solid substance that made me open them. And when they were opened, I could hardly believe them. Ernest Dobbs, who a moment before had been standing with his feet apart and his thumbs in his belt like a statue of justice putting it across the evildoer, had now assumed what I have heard described as a recumbent position. To make what I am driving at clear to the meanest intelligence, he was lying in the road with his face to the stars, while Jeeves, like a warrior sheathing his sword, replaced in his pocket some object which instinct told me was small but serviceable and constructed of India rubber. I tottered across and drew the breath in sharply as I viewed the remains. The best you could have said of Constable Ernest Dobbs was that he looked peaceful. Good Lord, Jeeves, I said. <clears throat> I took the liberty of coshing the officer, sir, he explained respectfully. I considered it advisable in the circumstances as the simplest method of averting unpleasantness. You will find it safe to descend now, sir, he proceeded, addressing Gussie. If I might offer the suggestion, speed is of the essence. One cannot guarantee that the constable will remain indefinitely immobile. This opened up a new line of thought. You don't mean he'll recover? Why, yes, sir, almost immediately. I'd have said that all he wanted was a lily in the right hand and he'd be set. Oh, no, sir. The cosh produces merely a passing malaise. Permit me, sir, he said, assisting Gussie to alight. I anticipate that Dobbs, on coming to his senses, would experience a somewhat severe headache, but into each life some rain must fall. Oh, precisely, sir. I think it would be prudent of Mr. Finknottle to remove his beard. It presents too striking a means of identification. But he can't. It's stuck on with spirit gum. If Mr. Finknottle will permit me to escort him to his room, sir, I shall be able to adjust that without difficulty. You will? Then get on with it, Gussie. Eh? said Gussie, being just the sort of chap who would stand about saying, eh? at a moment like this. He had a dazed air, as if he too had stopped one. Push off! Eh? I gave a weary gesture. Remove him, Jeeves, I said. Very good, sir. I would come along with you, but I shall be occupied elsewhere. I need about six more of those brandies, and I need them quick. You're sure about this living corpse? Sir? I mean, living really is the most used? Oh, yes, sir, if you will notice the officer is already commencing to regain consciousness. I did notice it. Ernest Dobbs was plainly about to report for duty. He stirred. He moved. He seemed to feel the rush of life along his keel, and this being so, I deemed it best to withdraw. 
I had no desire to be found standing at the sickbed when a fellow of his muscular development and uncertain temper came to and started looking about for responsible parties. I returned to the goose and cowslip at a good speed and proceeded to put big business in the way of the hand that came through the hatch. Then, feeling somewhat restored, I went back to the hall and dug in in my room. I had, as you will readily understand, much food for thought. The revelation of this deeper, coshing side to Jeeves's character had come as something of a shock to me. One found oneself wondering how far the thing would spread. He and I had had our differences in the past, failing to see eye to eye on such matters as purple socks and white dinner jackets, and it was inevitable, both of us being men of high spirit, that similar differences would arise in the future. It was a disquieting thought that in the heat of an argument about, say, soft-bosomed shirts for evening wear, he might forget the decencies of debate and elect to apply the closure by hauling off and socking me on the frontal bone with something solid. One could but trust that the feudal spirit would serve to keep the impulse in check. And I'd like to leave you with the uplifting tete-a-tete that follows a few pages later between Bertie and Esmond Haddock. Chapter 25. In dishing up this narrative for family consumption, it has been my constant aim throughout to get the right word in the right place and to avoid fobbing the customers off with something weak and inexpressive when they have a right to expect the telling phrase. It means a bit of extra work, but one has one's code. We will therefore expunge that came at the conclusion of the previous spasm and substitute for it curvetted. There was a flash of pink, and Esmond Haddock curvetted in. I don't know if you've ever seen a fellow curvet, but war horses used to do it rather freely in the old days, and Esmond Haddock was doing it now. His booted feet spurned the carpet in a sort of rhythmic dance, something on the lines of that of the recent poppy Kegley Bassington, and it scarcely needed the ringing hunting cries which he uttered to tell me that here stood a bird who was about as full of beans and buck as a bird could be. I hallo-esmonded and invited him to take a seat, and he stared at me in an incredulous sort of way. You don't seriously think that on this night of night I can sit down? he said. I don't suppose I shall sit down again for months and months and months. It's only by the exercise of the greatest willpower that I'm keeping myself from floating up to the ceiling. Yikes! He proceeded, changing the subject. Hard for a tally-o, lulu-lulu-lulu. It had become pretty plain by now that Jeeves and I, while budgeting for a certain uplift of the spirit as the result of the success on the concert platform, had underestimated the heady results of a popular triumph. Watching this haddock as he curveted and listening to his animal cries, I felt that it was lucky for him that my old buddy Sir Roderick Glossop didn't happen to be among those present. That zealous loony doctor would long ere this have been on the telephone summoning horny-handed assistants to rally round with his straight waistcoat and dust off the padded cell. Well, be that as it may, I said after he had loo-loo-looed for perhaps another minute and a quarter, I should like, before going any further, to express my gratitude to you for your gallant conduct in taking on those poems of mine. Is everything all right? A terrific! No mob violence? Oh, not a scrap. They ate them. Oh, that's good. 
One felt that you were so solidly established with a many-headed that you would be in no real danger. Still, you were taking a chance, and thank heaven that all ended well. I don't wonder you're bucked, I said, interrupting him in a fresh outbreak of lululuing. Anyone would be after making the sort of hit you did. You certainly wowed them. He paused in his curvetting to give me another incredulous look. My good Gussie, he said, you don't think I'm floating about like this just because my song got over? Aren't you? Certainly not. Then why do you float? Because of Corky, of course. Good Lord, he said, smiting his brow, and seeming a moment later to wish he hadn't, for he had caught it a rather juicy wallop. Good Lord, I hadn't told you, have I? And that'll give you a rough idea of the sort of doodah I'm in, because it was simply in order to tell you that I came here. You aren't abreast, Gussie. You haven't heard the big news. The most amazing front-page stuff has been happening, and you know nothing about it. Let me tell you the whole story. Do, I said, adding that I was a gog. He simmered down a bit, not sufficiently to enable him to take a seat, but enough to make him cheese the carpeting for a while. I wonder, Gussie, if you remember a conversation we had the first night you were here. To refresh your memory, it was the last time you were allowed to get at the port. The occasion when you touched up that lyric of my Aunt Charlotte's in such a masterly way, strengthening the weak spots and making it box office. If you recall, I said I recalled. In the course of that conversation, I told you that Corky had given me the brush If you recollect, I said I recollected. Well, tonight... You know, Gussie, he said, breaking off, it's the most extraordinary sensation, swaying a vast audience. Would you call it a vast audience? The question seemed to ruffle him. Well, the two bob shilling and eightpenny seats were all sold out, and there must have been fully fifty threepenny standees at the back, he said, a bit stiffly. Still, call it a fairly vast audience, if you prefer. It makes no difference to the argument. It's the most extraordinary sensation, swaying a fairly vast audience. It does something to you. It fills you with a sense of power. It makes you feel that you're a pretty hot number and that you aren't going to stand any nonsense from anyone. And under the head of nonsense, you find yourself classing girls, giving you the brusheroo. I mention this so that you'll be able to understand what follows. I smiled one of my subtle smiles. I know what follows, I said. You got hold of Corky and took a strong line. Why, yes, he said, seeming a little flattened. As a matter of fact, that was what I was leading up to. How did you guess? I smiled another subtle one. I foresaw what would happen if you slew that fairly vast audience. I knew you were one of those birds on whom popular acclamation has sensational effects. Yours has been a repressed life, and you have no doubt a marked inferiority complex. The cheers of the multitude frequently act like a powerful drug upon bimbos with inferiority complexes. I had rather expected this to impress him, and it did. His lower jaw fell a notch, and he gazed at me in a reverent sort of way. You're a deep thinker, Gussie. Always have been, from a child. One wouldn't suspect it just to look at you. It doesn't show on the surface. Yes, I said, getting back to the rays. Matters have taken precisely the course which I anticipated. With the cheers of the multitude ringing in your ears, you came off that platform a changed man, full of yeast 
and breathing flame through the nostrils. You found Corky. You backed her into a corner. You pulled a dominant male on her and fixed everything up, right? Oh, yes, that was just what happened. Amazing how you got it all taped out. Well, one studies the psychology of the individual, you know. Only I didn't back her into a corner. She was in her car, just driving off somewhere, and I shoved my head in at the window. And, oh, we kidded back and forth, he said a little awkwardly, as if reluctant to reveal what had passed at that sacred scene. I told her she was the lodestar of my life and all that sort of thing, and added that I intended to have no more rot about her not marrying me, and after a bit of pressing, she came clean and admitted that I was the tree on which the fruit of her life hung. Those who know Bertram Worcester best are aware that he is not an indiscriminate backslapper. He picks and chooses. But there was no question in my mind that here before me stood a back which it would be churlish not to slap. So I slapped it. Nice work, I said. Then everything's all right. Yes, he assented. Everything's fine, except one small detail. And what is that in round numbers? Well, it's a thing I don't know if you'll quite understand. To make it clear, I shall have to go back to that time when we were engaged before. She severed relations then because she considered that I was a bit too much under the domination of my aunts, and she didn't like it. Well, of course I knew this, having had it from her personal lips, but I wore the mask and weighed in with a surprise. Oh, really? Yes. Unfortunately, she hasn't changed her mind. Nothing doing in the orange blossom and wedding cake line, she says, until I've defied my aunts. Well, go ahead, defy them. My words seemed to displease him. With a certain show of annoyance, he picked up a statuette of a shepherdess on the mantelpiece and hurled it into the fireplace, reducing it to hash and removing it from the active list. It's all very well to say that. It's a thing that presents all sorts of technical difficulties. You can't just walk up to an aunt and say, I defy you. You need a cue of some sort. I'm dashed if I know how to set about it. I mused. Tell you what, I said. It seems to me that here is a matter on which you would do well to seek advice from Jeeves. Jeeves? My man. I thought your man's name was Meadows. A slip of the tongue, I said hastily. I meant to say Worcester's man. He is a bird of extraordinary sagacity and never fails to deliver the goods. He frowned a bit. Doesn't one rather want to keep visiting valets out of this? No, one does not want to keep visiting valets out of this, I said firmly. Not when they're Jeeves. If you didn't live all the year round in this rural morgue, you'd know that Jeeves isn't so much a valet as a Mayfair consultant. The highest in the land bring their problems to him. I shouldn't wonder if they didn't give him jeweled snuff boxes. And you think he'd have something to suggest? He always has something to suggest. In that case, said Esmond Haddock, brightening, I'll go and find him. With a brief lululu, he pushed off, clicking his spurs, and I settled down to another cigarette and a pleasant reverie.